Good morning. Welcome to Barah Ministries, an intimate local Christian church with worldwide impact. My name is Pastor Rory Clark. At Barah Ministries, we know this truth, that Jesus Christ is God. As the Lord, he is 100% deity. He's a member of the triune Godhead. He is God the Son. He is also 100% human, just like you and me. And his name is Jesus Christ. The Lord, God the Son, became flesh, Jesus Christ, and lived among us. He is the uniquely born one, the God-man, 100% God and 100% man and one person forever. He is the sovereign God of the universe. He is the Savior of the whole world. And he is the Jewish Messiah. And those who make Barah Ministries their spiritual home are Christians. We are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have a deep, intimate, and personal relationship with the Lord. Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. As a matter of fact, religion is the enemy of Christianity. And the Lord Jesus Christ is a person. The Lord is not a thing. He is not a concept. And just as we do with anyone whom we love, we spend time getting to know the Lord by knowing his mind. And the Bible is his exact thinking. Today's Bible lesson Hey, virgins, what are you waiting for? Hey, virgins, what are you waiting for? Well, one of my favorite poems from high school English, English was Robert Herrick's poem, To the Virgins, to make much of time. So let's review it. Here's what it says. It says, gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Old time is still a-flying. And that same flower that smiles today. Tomorrow, we'll be dying. That glorious lamp of heaven, the sun, the higher he's a-getting, the sooner will his race be run, and the nearer he's to setting. Now that time is best, which is the first, when youth and blood are warmer. But being spent, the worse and worse times still succeed the former. So be not coy, but use your time. And while ye may, go marry. For having lost but once your prime, you may forever tarry. It was a high school boy's dream to talk about the virgins. Robert Herrod suggests that virgins get on with it. And in the next passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul has some spiritual advice for the virgins of the world. And also, as we do every month, we'll remember our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by celebrating the Lord's Supper. And we'll learn that his work at the cross is the picture of grace. Well, let's begin the lesson with some music. We worship an omnipresent God who is everywhere at the same time, as King David correctly states in Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8. Here's what he says. He says, Lord, where can I go to hide from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascended to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, in hell, in the lake of fire. Behold, you're there as well. Well, our omnipresent God is an ever-present help in our lives and an ever-present help in times of trouble. And here's the group unspoken to sing about the Lord and their song, Reason. The Lord is the reason. Years felt like four 
seasons of winter And you'd give anything to feel the sun Always raging, always climbing Always second-guessing the timing But God has a plan, a purpose in this You are his child, and don't you forget He put that hunger in your heart count on June to have a song that ends abruptly, can't we? (laughs) Amen. Let us pray. We're grateful, Heavenly Father, for the privilege of studying your absolute truth, the Word of God. Father, you are the one from whom all blessings flow, the blessings of abundance and the blessings of scarcity, the blessings of prosperity and the blessings of adversity the blessings of rest, and the blessings of trials. Teach us to be content regardless of the circumstances. Help us to know you and your word and your goodness. Teach us to expect victory in every circumstance because we have victory through the work of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at the cross. 
And because we have guidance from our sanctifying mentor and teacher, God the Holy Spirit, let us hear what's being said to the churches around the world today. We ask this through the power of God the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, say it with me. Amen. Amen. Today's Bible lesson, hey virgins, what are you waiting for? Hey virgins, what are you waiting for? Well, I'd just like to welcome our guests today, Tim and Amanda and Alyssa. Thanks for coming. And if you didn't get it in the opening that uh, you're going to hear some things that you don't agree with today, uh, you did. (laughs) So the people of Barah Ministries really care about two things. We care about the Lord Jesus Christ as a person, and we know who he is. And then we care about the truth. And so my job as a pastor, is to go into this owner's manual for life, 27 books of which are responsible for, the New Testament, and to teach people word by word exactly what this says. And so we are in the sixth book of the New Testament, which is, is that right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seventh. We're in the seventh book of the New Testament, which is 1 Corinthians. And uh, so, anyway, just so you know, if you are listeners from an I agree, I disagree mentality, which most people are today, then you'll miss it. You'll miss the truth. Because here's the truth. Anything that you agree with is already in your little box. And if you're just looking to confirm things that are in your little box, you'll miss life. Because most of the things in life are not in your little box. So you should always pay more attention to the things you don't agree with. And that gives you a a chance to be curious, to investigate, and to ask questions, which is the key to learning. So welcome. We usually tell our guests you need about eight lessons before you really feel comfortable here. And so I hope that you'll hang in there through that period because the Lord is worth getting to know. And his word is the absolute truth. And this is the thing that gets us through this life. This is the thing which allows us to look at what's going on in the world and say, we're not afraid of a flu. 65 years, my body has been successfully fighting off flu. And it didn't forget just because somebody got on television and told me that it should. I'm not scared of anything. If I'm scared of anything, it's because I'm a wino. And winos are scared of running out of wine, amen? Other than that, I ain't scared of nothing. Huh? Yeah, well, it is candy, but, you know, wino's funnier. But anyway, to the virgins, what are you waiting for? Rivalries and divisions were alive and well in the church at first century Corinth. As believers in Christ in the church kept looking for reasons to be divided. Oh my goodness, that sounds familiar. Doesn't that sound familiar? Here we are two centuries later, and we're still doing the exact same thing. It's almost like we live in Satan's kingdom. It's almost like that's his whole program, divisions and rivalries. Can you imagine anything stupider? than thinking that you're superior to somebody because of the color of your skin. Can you think of anything that's stupider than that? Yet that's what we do. Can you think of anything stupider than thinking that you are superior or inferior to someone because of the nation that your parents come from? That's craziness. 
And that's what was going on in the church in Corinth. Corinth was the Las Vegas of the first century. What happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. So the Romans would go over to Corinth to do things that people today go over to Las Vegas to do. And then they come back to their normal life. But over in Vegas, they're doing all kind of nasty stuff. Amen? All right. It's one of my favorite places to go. So anyway, Paul, <laughs> Paul is begging them to think differently. And you remember what we studied in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. It says this. Now I, Paul, exhort you, fellow believers in Christ, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no rivalries or divisions among you, and that instead you be made complete in the same mind and in the same purpose. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11. For I, Paul, have been informed concerning you, my brethren, in the church at Corinth, by Chloe's people, that there are rivalries and divisions among you. And yes, there were. There was a rich element in the church, and there were poor people in the church, and the rich people thought they were better than the poor people. There was a social strata in the church. And there were people who were high society, and there were people who were low society, and the high society people thought they were better than the low society people. There were people who were mature in the church, and there were people who were immature in the church, and the mature people thought that they were better than the immature people. These are the divisions and the rivalries that have always been going on among human beings, and they will always be going on from now until doomsday, and there's nothing you're going to do to change it. And all the social consciousness is happening now. All the friends of mine that are calling me and saying, you know, are you okay? I hate that question. I say, are you okay? What do you mean? Well, I, I, I just want you to know that I'm very sensitive to the things that black people are going through. Shut up. You are not. You have never been sensitive to anything I'm going through. You don't even like me. Shut up. But I appreciate the call. But you don't have to do that. This has been going on since I was born. I was born in the ghetto. I had a 0.001% chance of getting out. It's been going on forever. And now that I am high society myself, amen. <laughs> Why y'all laughing at me? I'm high society. I fly first class. I fly first class when I'm on an airplane. I go to the front of the first class line and people walk around me and get in front of me in the line. I've been standing in the line for 20 minutes. They walk around me and get in front of me in the line. Sister Pat and Brother Larry can testify, amen. Why do they do that? Because I couldn't possibly be in first, cl first class because I'm black. And then they get all embarrassed when I am in first class. And they get that look on their face. And I say, yeah, uh-huh. Uh, you were absent at, when they taught manners in kindergarten, right? You were absent. And you know what? When I start flying again in a few weeks, this is going to happen again. And nothing changed because something happened in Minneapolis. So that's what we're learning. See, the Bible is telling us the truth. This is the truth. It's not going to stop happening. If you are a female, you're not going to start getting paid the same amount of money that males are getting paid. You're not. There's always been pay inequality with gender inequality. It's not going to stop. What has to change is you, not society. 
What has to change is when you realize that that's going on, you need to move to another place that's willing to pay you more, and then another place that's willing to pay you more until you get to the goal that you want to get to. Amen? This is exactly what happens in my career. Inevitably, after three years of helping companies to double their sales in a couple of years, somebody's going to ask the question, why are we paying the black guy all that money? That just happens. You think I'm going to be upset about it? I'm not going to be upset about it. You know why? Because it was happening in first century Corinth. And my God dropped a church right in the middle of the Las Vegas of the time. Because he's always on duty. He's the one who extracted me from the ghetto. He's the one who put me up here and said, your weekends are no longer yours. They're mine. And I said, okay, <laughs> are you sure? I'd certainly rather sleep in on Sunday and eat Cinnabons and watch, read the Arizona Republic. But okay, I'll go teach the people who don't like me and aren't listening to me. <laughs> the slow learner group. I got the slow learner group. All right, so the old saying goes, the more things change, the more they stay the same. So we're still dealing with divisions and rivalries in the world 20 centuries later. And, and by the way, the classroom for division is your family. The classroom for division, marriage, family, the nation. Isn't that amazing? And God tells us about it right here in the owner's manual. There will always be wars and rumors of war until I come again. Don't worry, it's not the end. So, as we transition to Paul's answering the concerns of Chloe's people in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, because the first six chapters were about the problem, chapters 7 to 16 are about the solutions where Paul starts to make spiritual suggestions. We see the continuation of the believers who look for new ways to be divided, married and single, rich and poor, slave and free, ascetic and lascivious. Ascetic, people who are into self-denial, who are moral, who think they're wonderful because of all the things they deny themselves. And lascivious, people who are going to the strip clubs and drinking and drugging. And, you know, the moral think they're better than the immoral, but if I had a choice, I'd rather hang out with the immoral people. Amen? Because they're, they're real. They're, they're true. They tell the truth. And we're going to see why that's so important. That truth is so important when we celebrate the Lord's Supper today. So what do we learn from Paul as he dispenses advice and perspective in the first 24 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 7? Because we've studied those verses. I think there are at least 10 things that we've learned from studying those verses. Number one, no. Being in a marriage and being celibate does not make you more noble. And there were ascetic married couples in the church at Corinth who thought that they were special because they were denying each other sex in the marriage relationship. That does not make you special. That makes you stupid. And people today are doing the same thing. Married couples have a joke. And the joke is, if you 
put a penny in a jar when you get married every time you have sex in the first year, and then every year after that you take a penny out of the jar as you have sex, you will never get to the bottom of the jar. That's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. And God says so. So being celibate in marriage does not make us more noble. God accepts us the way we are, whether we're moral or immoral, whether we're noble or ignoble, God still loves us. In fact, husbands and wives must make themselves available to each other for sexual intercourse, according to the Lord. Said in the strength of the Lord's might, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, stop depriving one another. It's in the imperative mood in the Greek, which is the mood of command. Stop depriving one another of sex, married couples. We learn that. We learn to stay together. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the first 24 verses tells us don't initiate divorce. Stay married no matter what. And one thing is for sure, there will be a lot of what's that matter when you get married. So much, so many what's that you'll want to leave. And none of those what's are what's that you could have predicted on that day when you had the wedding, when you're staring at each other with that silly look in your face. I love home. I love her. Did we get all the flowers right on the tables? You remember that? If you are a Christian and you marry an unbeliever, to the degree that the unbeliever wants to stay with you in a committed marriage, Stay with them. Do not divorce. Now, the Bible tells Christians don't marry unbelievers because light has nothing in common with darkness. Righteousness has nothing in common with unrighteousness, but we do it anyway because we think we're going to change them. But it's not what happens. But if you're a Christian and you marry an unbeliever to the degree that the unbeliever wants to stay with you in a committed marriage, stay with them. Do not divorce. But if an unbeliever leaves a marriage with a Christian, the Christian is free to remarry. Paul gave his opinion. Paul said he thought it was better if you are single and celibate. Single and not having sex. Why did he think that? Because he was single and not Yet Paul acquiesces that it's just as noble a calling to be married, especially if you are one who is regularly aflame with passion. And so being aflame with passion, having the desire for sexual relationship is not a sin. It's normal. It's completely normal. But everything that is ever talked about about sex elicits that little stupid giggle that we do (laughs) because we don't want to talk about real stuff. And so even as adults, we're given a little stupid grin anytime sex comes up. (laughs) And everything connected with sex is dirty, bad, and wrong because that's what we're taught when the exact opposite is what's true. So Paul says, if you're aflame with passion, you should probably get married. Paul encourages us to create the lifestyle we want to create, yet make sure it's in line with God's mandates. And I don't think that God would want you selling drugs. I don't think God would want you (coughs) involved in anything. So that's not the lifestyle he's encouraging. 
the no matter what philosophy emanates from the source of God because he loves us unconditionally and he loves us exactly the way we are. So how many times have you said to yourself, I'll bet God is disappointed with me. That's a lie. God has never been disappointed with you, not one second of your life, ever. Why? Because he's omniscient. He knows all the knowable. And before he created you, he knew everything dumb that you would do. And he created you anyway. He knew every sin you'd commit, past, present, and future. And what did he do? He went to the cross and paid for it so that you wouldn't have to. No, he's not disappointed with you. No matter what you have done in your lifetime, no matter what it is that you beat yourself up about, he's not beating you up about it. That's you. That's his enemy, Satan. That is not him. He loves you unconditionally. Un, with no conditions. That means he does not require anything of you. He doesn't need your help in saving you. He doesn't need you to love him back. He doesn't need anything from you. He's there to give you something. Amen? What an amazing God. But that's not what you're taught. That's not what you're taught because you went. You were in religion. And religion told you God is not going to forget. He's not going to forget. He's got his foot above your head ready to come down on you. He's the one. Who damns you to hell. It's not true. It's false. And I was in religion for 50 years. Deeply into it. Knew it inside and out. So believe me when I tell you. Religion is a lie. And the way you know it's a lie is because it always tells you you have to do something to impress God. When the truth is you can't do anything to impress God. There's nothing impressive about us. God is for you, whether you are slave or free, whether you are rich or poor, whether you are male or female, whether you are ascetic or lascivious, whether you are circumcised or not. Social or economic status, gender and race are not part of God's view of us, and we must avoid making them relevant when we're dealing with other people as well. The Lord at the cross broke down the barrier between the Jews, his chosen race, and the Gentiles, the rest of us. And therefore, circumcision and uncircumcision are not relevant. Only God's mandates are relative, and these are not things to use to divide us. Amen? The next passage we'll study is a long one. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 to 40. We won't begin our study of it today, but at least we'll get a preview of the passage before we go into the Lord's Supper celebration. Let's take a look. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 25, now concerning virgins. Now you remember that as Paul answers the questions he was asked by Chloe's people, he always starts the answer with now concerning. So from chapter 7 to chapter 16, you're going to see that over and over again. Now concerning. So here he's now concerning virgin. Ah, pastor, you're a genius. That's why you gave us the to the virgins poem at the beginning, huh? You, you're making a connection. Yeah, I'm making a connection. Amen? It's amazing. All right, so now concerning versions. I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. Paul says, this isn't God talking. This is me talking from what I've learned from God. 
1 Corinthians 7, 26. I think then that it is good in view of the present distress, and we'll learn as we study the passage what the present distress is, that it's good for a man to remain as he is. If you're single, be single. If you're married, be married. If you're a virgin, be a virgin. If you're not, oh well. 1 Corinthians Corinthians 7, 27. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Don't seek a wife. 1 Corinthians 7.28. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life. And I'm trying to spare you the trouble. I love him. What is he saying? He's saying, if you're single, you got it easy. If you're married, oh my goodness. Married couples, can I get an amen for the oh my goodness? Jesse said, I, I quit a long time ago, man. I just, don't, please, don't even, don't do it. <laughs> Marriage is hell. I was on a golf course one time, and this couple was getting married, and I yelled at them, welcome to hell. <laughs> they laughed. Their parents did not laugh. The parents were paying the $25,000 for the destination wedding. <laughs> they didn't see anything funny about it. All right. 1 Corinthians 7.29, but this I, Paul, say, brethren, and whenever Paul uses the word brethren, he's talking about believers in Christ, but this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, 1 Corinthians 7.30, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. Isn't that awesome? That's so exciting to me. That one day as believers in Christ, we will be in heaven face to face with the Lord forever in a place of no more sorrow, no more tears. The old things have died. Behold, the new things have come. The new creation has come. And there will be no influence from God's enemy in heaven. And we will be happy, and we will spend time face-to-face with the Lord, and we will learn the truth without encumbrance. And that's amazing. But we can do the same thing here on earth. And it's God's intention that we do that same thing here and that same thing when we get to heaven so that we aren't strangers. He wants us to get to know him now. People say, well, yeah, that's all well and good, Pastor. You want us to get to know the Lord, but how can we know somebody that we've never seen? The same way you do it on uh, uh, Snapchat. Same way you do it on, what are some of those dating sites? Zeusk. You know, eHarmony. You, you, you ain't never seen the people, but you got, you're talking to them. You aren't talking. Text messaging is not talking. You aren't communicating to them. You're monologuing back and forth. You can do that. And you can believe that whoever it is that's typing those words back to you is real, but you can't think that God is real because you can't see him. You know why? Because you're not looking at his word. Here's his text message. This is God's text message. Sorry he didn't put it in your phone, but actually he did. That's why, you know, you asked me where 1 Corinthians is. I'm, I, I'm like, I, I don't really know. I got tabs. I got tabs to find out where because I... Right now, I just put in a word, boom, the verse pops up on my phone. Amen? I like that. I'm lazy. I like that. 
Putting together a Bible lesson has never been easier. People used to have to actually study. All I have to do is go to Google and ask the right question. I get 95 resources at my desk while I sit in my footed pajamas. Amen? Oh, yeah, I have footed pajamas. Somebody in this very congregation gave me footed pajamas. Amen? And I wear them. It's a little rabbit suit while I'm writing the lesson. All right, 1 Corinthians 7.32. But I, Paul, want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord and how he may please the Lord. That's me. 1 Corinthians 7.33. But the one who's married is concerned about the things of the world and how he may please his wife. Amen, Jesse. (laughs) 1 Corinthians 7.34. And his interests are divided between the wife and the Lord. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world and how she may please her husband. But I ain't even asking you. I ain't asking you. I'm not going to make you lie. Amen. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 7.35. This I say for your own benefit, not to put restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. And that's the key. You know, if you want to worship the Lord, you got to make some time. Now, the people in Barah Ministries make this two hours every week, and it's sacred. Nothing gets in the way. Yeah, they get a lot of requests for this 9 to 11 time, but they say no. No. I have 168 hours a week. That two weeks is mine. It's sacred. No, you can't have it. That's the difference between them and everybody else who, uh, like, we're, we're, whatever you want. Everybody who comes to Barah Ministries and they say, you know, I really like that place. I want to stay. The next thing that happens to them is they, they get a call from their boss. We need you to work on Sunday. What time? What time are you available? Well, I could be available like noon to five. No, actually, we need you at nine to 11. <laughs> Every single time. And people think that's a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. It's not. And you think I'm joking about that. I am not joking about that. That has happened virtually every time somebody has thought, had just the thought that they like what they're learning at Barah Ministries. And all of a sudden, everything comes that tells them why they shouldn't be here. 1 Corinthians 7.36. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter... And I think that's a dad. If she has passed her youth, and it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. To the virgins to make much of time. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Old time is still a flying. 1 Corinthians 7.37. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. Keep her from marrying, that is. 1 Corinthians 7.38. So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. (laughs) Why do better? Saves her from marriage. Amen? 1 Corinthians 7.39. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Marry a believer if you're a believer. 1 Corinthians 7.40. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is, 
And I think that I also have the Spirit of God saying the exact same thing. <laughs> Paul is beautiful. So I, I'm really looking forward to studying that passage, and we're going to begin the study of that passage next week, probably take us a few weeks. We'll look forward to the beginning of that study. Right now, uh, you're going to get a five-minute break, and when we return from the break, we'll take the offering, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. Take a five-minute break. Why you ever chose me has always been a mystery. All my life, I've been told I belong at the end of the line. Will all the other not quite? Will all the never get it right? But it turns out they're the ones you were looking for all this time. Cause I'm just a nobody. We're trying to tell everybody. All about somebody who saved my soul. Ever since you rescued me, you gave my heart a song to sing. I'm living for the world to see. Nobody but Jesus. I'm living for the world to see. Nobody but Jesus. When Moses had stage fright, and David brought a rock to a sword fight. You picked 12 outsiders nobody would have chosen And you changed the world Well, the moral of the story is Everybody's got a purpose So when I hear that devil start talking to me Saying, who do you think you are? I say, I'm, I'm just a nobody Trying to tell everybody All about somebody Who saved my soul
Welcome back. Today's Bible lesson. Hey, virgins, what are you waiting for? Hey, virgins, what are you waiting for? Well, King David asks an interesting question in Psalm 116, verse 12. He says this, What shall I give to the Lord in repayment for all his goodness toward me? What shall I give to the Lord in repayment for all his goodness toward me? What can we, mere men, give to the almighty, all-powerful, and all-sufficient God who needs absolutely nothing from us? Well, the Lord wants us to give of those things which he gifted us with, our time, our talent, and our treasure. The offering is the treasure part. It's your chance to redirect the funds God has given you for the benefit of others. We give with confidence knowing that what we give, God will replace. And he always does replace it. And not equally, but in abundance in your favor. So as believers in Christ, we do not have a scarcity mentality when we give because that does not reflect our Lord's mind. Let's welcome up Deacon Denny Goodall with the offering message. Good morning. morning. I'm Denny Goodall. I'm I'm blessed to be a deacon for Bra Ministries, which is a worldwide Christian church where real people come to listen to a real pastor teach the real truth from the Word of God. And this week I've been I was thinking about Pastor a lot because he he's brought up before and he's mentioned it a couple times just about his growing up and how he grew up in a a fatherless boy in a single family a single mother family. Dad left him before he was even born. the fact that he's black growing up and he went through the number of names that he's been categories he's been called through that and he, he didn't mention one thing though which I thought was also you know kind of a bad thing was born in Chicago like that's, that's just a bad part to start off right there too you miss that and his name is Rory a little Irish name growing up in the hood it probably didn't suit, suit him too well sometimes but just thinking about that is thinking about his circumstance, his situation. A lot of people say he's bound to just go into a gang. He's bound to not do anything with his life. Basically saying that we're a slave to our situation or that our situation, our circumstance controls our outcome. And that's to say that you have no choice, right? Slaves have no choice. If you say somebody has no choice in life, you're calling them a slave. That's kind of a big deal. And I think it's one of those words we kind of gloss over like, holy and chosen and you know redeemed and sealed as slave we're a slave to god we were bought with a price we can see in the verse we just studied first corinthians chapter 7 verse 23 you were bought with a price by the lord by his blood by his life so do not become slaves of religious men so basically he's saying you don't have to do what religious men say you have a choice so pastor growing up had a choice he didn't have to be scared and we talked about when he went to Northwestern and he was being made fun of by other students because he wasn't hanging out with the same race. And they were saying, you don't have a choice. You have to be with us. But Pastor knew he had a choice. And so it's interesting with God that he does the work of our salvation and he gives us a choice to be a part of it. After our salvation, he continues to do the work. And we still have a choice to be a part of it or not to be a part of it. That's not slavery. I think we enslave ourselves. We have mental slavery. And Bob Marley said, emancipate yourself from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds. And I think a lot of times we get stuck in, see, this day and age right now, the fear, the fear mongering is going on. We're so scared. We're so stuck. We have no choice. 
But we have choices. We know with God we always have choice. We don't have to be a slave to the religious men. We can be a slave to God because we were bought with a price. He paid for it. He did all the work. He's doing all the work. So we don't have to worry. We don't have to be slaves. And we always have a choice. And I think in this situation in our life with the church right now, we feel like, oh, we have no choice. We're so small. We have nothing we can do. We have plenty of choices. We have plenty of options. And just like in your lives, you have plenty of choices. You can be here or not be here. You know, your choices in your life create you, not your circumstances. And so, you know, at the offering, it's a choice. We don't force anybody to give. You give because you want to give. You give because it's something that in your heart you want to give back to God because he's given to you. And guests, we don't expect you to give at the offering, but feel free to. Um, but it's one of those things. We, we offer everything at Barah Ministries free of charge because it's God's option to give us all choices. And so we're giving people choices through this ministry. And so thank you for always giving to this ministry and just remember that you were bought with a price by the Lord and do not become slaves of men. Do not become slaves of fear. Do not let your mind get lost in slavery because you haven't, think you have no choices. And I think a lot of times we end up enslaving ourselves in situations because of others' choices. We fixate on their choice and we're so mad at them. Hey, they did this to me, they did this to me. And we're just one choice away from forgiving them. All we have to do is think something else. And then we enslave ourselves due to this choice they made, and we're stuck in it. That just seems silly to me. So just like God says, we have a choice, and religious men say we don't. We have to work for it, and we don't have a choice, and we're stuck. So I think it's, it's true of our families, our work, our lives, and our church. You know, we always have a choice, and so we thank you for choosing Barah Ministries. And we thank you for always supporting our pastor, who is always dedicated to us and loves us truly with his heart. So thank you very much. Welcome back. 
the Lord's Supper celebration at the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ became the picture of grace. The Lord Jesus Christ became the picture of grace. Uh, Just so you know, uh, next week is Father's Day. Next Sunday is Father's Day. And uh, yesterday was my dad's birthday. If he was alive, he'd be 107. And he's mad that he's not alive because he wanted to be the oldest person ever in the family. And unfortunately, I told him to give up on that dream because that was going to be me. But And so evidently he just did. So he died when he was 80, but uh, always thinking about my dad. So I, I tell you that because... As a dad, I don't want underwear and I don't want socks. And, you know, dads always seem to get underwear and socks. And Father's Day is, oh, yeah, that day. And, you know, we, ain't, we don't get anything. So I, I'm just letting you know you got a week to get it together. If you got a daddy, you need to honor him. Because the Bible says, honor your mom and your dad so that it may go well with you and it may extend your days on the earth. And no matter whether your mom or dad are goofy people or normal people, which means they're goofy people anyway, they deserve your honor. So think about that. All right, so the Lord's Supper celebration at the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ became the picture of grace. So welcome to the Lord's Supper celebration, which is the most intimate expression of our love for the Lord Jesus Christ in the Christian way of living. The Lord demonstrates his desire for a deep, intimate, and personal relationship with his believers by creating a way to keep on sharing his body and blood with us, just as he did with his apostles on the night before his death. Luke chapter 22, verses 14 to 16 say this, When the hour had come and his crucifixion was near, the Lord Jesus Christ reclined at the Passover table, and the apostles reclined with him. Luke twenty two fifteen and the Lord said to the apostles, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. Luke twenty two sixteen, for I, the Lord Jesus Christ, say to you that I shall never again eat this Passover meal until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God the Father. In First Corinthians chapter eleven, verse twenty six, the apostle Paul says on behalf of the Lord, as often as you eat this bread representing his body, And as often as you drink this cup representing his blood, as part of the Lord's Supper celebration, you proclaim as a reality and you announce the significance of the Lord Jesus Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead until he comes again at the second coming. The Lord's Supper celebration is a time when the resident members of this congregation join hands through the miles with our non-resident members and we demonstrate our unity by remembering our Lord together. This is a celebration for which we set aside time. We don't do this on the move. And during the Lord's Supper celebration, Jesus wants his believers to look back at the cross for a moment. Generally speaking, in the Christian way of living, we don't look back. The Lord says, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on for the gold and the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We don't look back in the Christian way of life because there's nothing we can do about the past. But we look back to the cross to remember what happened there. And so he wants us to look back for a moment and, and, and just think about what happened there. He wants us to remember how he rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. 
He wants us to remember the sacrifice of shedding his blood to cover our sins. So often, what we do is feel sorry about our sins. You feeling sorry about your sins and $2.40 will get you a cup of Starbucks coffee. It has absolutely zero significance. Sin is covered by blood. Blood of the lamb without spot or blemish. And so when we look back at the cross, we see the lamb without spot or blemish, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shed his blood to pay for our sins. He wants us to remember the deliverance that he gave us to the resurrection life he orchestrated. At the moment that you believe in Christ, you have eternal life, the resurrection life, as a free gift. It is not a future event. It's an instant gift that keeps on giving forever. He wants us to remember the deliverance to this resurrection life that he orchestrated, bringing us out of darkness into his kingdom of light. And most of all, the Lord wants his believers to look forward with anticipation to the fact that he is coming again. So as believers in Christ, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we ask ourselves in reflection, when we look at that cross, anytime we look at that cross, What did the Lord Jesus Christ do for us at the cross? And this month, we acknowledge that at the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ became the picture of grace. I don't believe you heard me, so I'm going to repeat that. At the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ became the picture of grace. The Lord, God the Son, is spiritual royalty. He is a member of the triune Godhead. He is the sovereign God of the universe. And nothing ever happens in this world without his permission. All the things that are going on in the world right now occur, not because he caused them, but because he allowed them. And when he allows things, he has a purpose. And we need to know what that purpose is. And that purpose is your victory. He is the creator of the universe, both the heavens and the earth. And he created all that is in the universe, according to John chapter 1, verse 3, which says this, All things came into being through the Lord, God the Son. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. I am not a violent man. But when I hear somebody say, The universe gave it to me, I want to punch him right in the face. The universe didn't give you jack. The universe is a concept. It is not a person. And everything amazing that has ever happened to you, including breath filling your lungs every moment, involuntarily without you working to make that occur, came from the Lord. The Lord voluntarily chose to humiliate himself by taking on the form of true humanity in the flesh. He became the God-man, 100% God and 100% man and one person forever, the uniquely born one. You've heard it said, described in the Bible as the only begotten son of God, lousy translation, uniquely born son, uniquely born in what way? He is God and man and one person forever. John chapter 1 verse 14 says this, and the word, the Lord, God the Son, became flesh, Jesus Christ, first name, last name, Jesus Christ. And he lived among us, and we saw his glory. We beheld his glory, 
glory as of the uniquely born one from the source of God the Father. God the Father sent his son to die for you. And if you had been the only one that he had to die for because you sinned, he would have sent him anyway. And there isn't one of us here who can say, if we have a son, that we would send our son to die for anybody. And I guarantee you, I have two sons, and I would not send them to die for anybody, including me. There is no way. So if you get the magnitude of that sacrifice, it's amazing. The Word, the Lord, God the Son, became flesh, Jesus Christ, and he lived among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the uniquely born one from the source of God the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And it's grace that we focus on today. Okay, so let's take a look at this grace thing. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. The first six verses of the New Testament. And we are church-age believers, so we are responsible for the New Testament. The Old Testament was to Israel. Anything that is in the Old Testament that applies to us is repeated in the New Testament. All right, so you go to your Bible and you open up to Matthew And the first thing you're hit with is a genealogy. And if you have ever gotten it as a goal to read the Bible, and you start with Matthew, and you read that genealogy, here's what you do. You close it up and say, okay, well, that was good. (laughs) I don't know what that meant. And if the rest of it's just like that, I don't want it. I'm out. That's all. But. Why would this New Testament start with a genealogy? We're going to find out. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 6, describes the ancestry from which Jesus Christ's true humanity descended. When, in other words, when God took on the form of a human, it's God inside a human. He came from a human lineage. And so the beginning of Matthew describes that lineage. Let's look at it. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew 1, 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah were all regenerate Jews. Messianic Jews, Jews who believed in Jehovah Elohim, God the Son, Jews who believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord who is the Christ, the Messiah, and believing in him was credited to their account as absolute righteousness, and absolute righteousness is the admission ticket to heaven. At the moment you believe in Christ, you have something credited to your account. It's called absolute righteousness, and you can never lose it no matter what you do, and that is your admission ticket to heaven. Everybody, oh, well, I went up to the pearly gates in St. Peter. St. Peter ain't at no pearly gates. The Lord Jesus Christ comes down and takes you up personally if you're a believer in Christ. There's no gates. Amen? Amen. Let's get rid of the fairy tales. But these Jews... Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah believed in the Lord. It's in their Torah. The first five books of the Bible, they excerpt that, and it's their Torah. And in Genesis 15, 6 of the Torah, it says, Abraham believed in the Lord, 
Jehovah Elohim, and it was credited to his account as righteousness. The admission ticket to heaven. Matthew chapter 1, verse 3. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron was the father of Ram. Matthew 1, 4. Ram was the father of Amenadab. Amenadab was the father of Nashon, and Nashon was the father of Salmon. That made me hungry when I was studying. Matthew 1, 5. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed was the father of Jesse. Matthew 1, 6. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Now this is a part of the Lord's family tree. And no, we have not turned into Latter-day Saints. No, we are not a cult who is suddenly interested in genealogies. And yes, family trees in and of themselves are pretty boring unless you look deeper than the surface. If you noticed, there were four names capitalized in those six verses. They are the first four women that the New Testament mentions. They are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Have you ever heard of them? You see, there are two books in the Bible that are named after women, Ruth and one other. If you don't know by the next week, then I didn't ask you none. I'll be giving away my quiz. <laughs> You're right, it was Esther. So Ruth and Esther are the two women who have biblical books named after them. But do you know anything about these four women? When you know their stories, perhaps you'll get a glimpse of God's amazing grace. What you'll learn as their stories unfold is that there is not one single redeeming thing about any of these women according to the viewpoint of the world. You see, there is not one single redeeming thing about you either. Right? But what does the Lord do? He starts off telling this genealogy, and in this genealogy there are four women and there's nothing redeeming about these women, as we will see. Tamar's story is told in the 33 verses of Genesis chapter 38. She deceived her father-in-law, Judah, by pretending to be a temple prostitute. She had sex with him, and she had twins by him so that she could ensure the continuation of Judah's family after her husband had died. She was a deceiver. Why would the Lord mention that he had come from the line of a deceiver? In the 24 verses of Joshua chapter 2, we meet Rahab, a Canaanite woman and a prostitute who was disobedient to her king. Now, she had a double, a double whammy because Canaanite women were thought of as scum. And then she was a prostitute. She was sex for hire and she ran a brothel. A whole house. Amen? <laughs> but she was disobedient to her king, and that's even worse. The king of Jericho. During a siege against Jericho, her home country, Rahab hid two Israeli spies, the enemies, in the brothel, on the roof, and as a result, her life was spared because she made a deal with them that if I hide you so that you don't get killed, 
then you have to spare my life and the life of my family. Now, that was a risky move because the Israelis were not too fond of her people. But they made a deal and she was spared. But she was disloyal. In addition to being a Canaanite and being a prostitute and a conspirator, she was disloyal. Ruth was a Moabite woman. The Moabites had mistreated the Jews during their wilderness period, the time when they escaped from Egypt and were wandering across the desert toward Israel. So the Moabites were forbidden to attend Israel's worship services. And they were also thought to be descended as a people from an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters, a father having sex with daughters to have babies who became the Moabites. So, but despite her cursed background, Ruth declared to the Jewish people in Ruth chapter 1, verse 16, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you, for where you go I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. Cursed or not, Ruth believed in the Lord, yet she was an outcast from a tribe of outcasts. You've likely heard of Bathsheba, because the story of David and Bathsheba is is infamous. David, the king of Israel, was supposed to be out with his army, But he wasn't. He stayed home like a coward, wandered out onto his balcony, looked over into his best friend's yard, who was the general of his army, saw his wife sunbathing naked, summoned her to the palace, had sex with her, got her pregnant, called Uriah back to the castle so that he would sleep with his wife so that it would be conceivable that he had gotten her pregnant, But Uriah was too noble to do that, so he slept in the guard shack, refusing to sleep with his wife while his men were on the battlefield, a thing of integrity. And so David, unable to pull off his conspiracy, had Uriah sent to the front lines and killed. And then he married Bathsheba. Now, seldom is Bathsheba's role in the incident ever mentioned as if she was innocent. And by the way, David had 700 prostitutes in his castle, any one of which he could have had sex with. He didn't have to steal his best friend's wife. This is the slingshot guy. You know the David I'm talking about, slingshot, David and Goliath guy? Yeah. A lot of integrity, this guy. And by the way, In Acts chapter 13, verse 22, the Lord describes him as a man after my heart, the kind who will do all my will. So, but Bathsheba gets out of this as if she did nothing. But she committed adultery with David while her husband Uriah was out at war, and she gave birth to a bastard child by David that later died. And then she married David. But David gets all the blame, yet she participated as well. Well, Jesus Christ came from the line of David and Bathsheba, even though she was an adulteress. These four women are a motley crew, amen? (laughs) As you can see, there's nothing really redeeming about them because all of these women are like us. They have failed in some way. 
All of these women are of disfavor in some way, yet the God of all grace provided a way for them to escape their circumstances. What was God's attitude toward them? It was graceful. It was unconditional. It was loving, so much so that he was willing to come from their lineage. The Lord Jesus Christ is royalty. He is sovereignty. He doesn't have to stoop to become a human being. That's disgraceful for him. And he certainly doesn't have to come from a line of disloyal, prostitute, adulteresses, conspirators. He didn't have to choose that, but he did. Ever wonder why? Did you ever wonder why he did that? What'd you say, priestess? <laughs> June's over here talking to herself again. Don't make me call 911. <laughs> grace. What is grace? Grace is a part of the Lord's being. Grace is who he is. Grace is part of the Lord's purpose. Grace isn't just something that he does. It's not just something that he has. It's who he be. The Lord is the source of grace, and we are the objects of his grace. The Lord is the source of grace, and we're the object of his grace. The Lord is like sunshine, and we stand and bask in the heat of the sunshine. We are the objects of the sun's heat, just like we are the objects of the Lord's grace. Grace constitutes all God has always been pleased to do for his creatures, to demonstrate a willingness to give us the space to grow as we wish and on our own time frame. Grace is a manifestation of the Lord's unconditional love for us. The Lord's graciousness does not take into account the worthiness of the object of his grace. If he took into account our worthiness, we would be screwed. Because we are not worthy. And we know it. We're always telling ourselves that. We're always pulling out our imaginary rubber hose. You're so stupid. I can't believe you did that. Oh my goodness. How could you ever? We know we're not worthy. And God has never pulled out a rubber hose and beaten us with it. God is not a punishing God. He disciplines us in a character pattern, and he invites us to the character pattern. He says, that's not the way I prefer you work. Do this instead. Let's go. You want to go? It's up to you. Not forcing you. Let's go. Freedom. What an amazing God we have. But freedom, with freedom comes responsibility. Grace is a manifestation of this love that God has for us, and it does not require our worthiness. The Lord's grace cannot be earned. It is not deserved. It can't be worked for. It is simply a free gift that we can accept if we so choose. The cross always was, is now, and always will be a picture of the Lord's grace. God the Father started the chain of grace 
Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 7 say this, God the Father, being rich in mercy because of his great unconditional love with which the Father loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, even when we were spiritually dead, even when we were on the wrong side of a barrier, even when we were his enemy and we were born into that status. God the Father made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, us being believers in Christ. By grace you have been saved. Ephesians 2, 6. And he raised us up in resurrection from the dead, a future event with Christ, a current event that will be clear to you in the future. And he seated us with Jesus in the heavenly places in union with Christ Jesus. And when you have that rubber hose out, if you're a believer in Christ and you take out your rubber hose to beat yourself up with it, believe me, as you're beating yourself up, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe how stupid I am. You don't once say, I can't believe that I'm seated at the right hand of God the Father with Jesus Christ in union with him. You have never said that, yet that's your reality. Because that reality is not obvious to you yet, but it is your reality. Amen? Ephesians 2, 7, so that in the ages to come, why did God the Father do this? Why did he resurrect us from the dead? Why is he going to resurrect us from the dead? And why does he have us seated at the right hand of, his, uh, uh, of himself with his son? And why do we, are we in union with Christ, a union we can't get out of as believers in Christ? Why did he do all that stuff for us? Ephesians 2, 7, so that in the ages to come, in the future, God the Father has demonstrated the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward all of us who are in union with Christ. Because God doesn't expect blind faith. There's no such thing as blind faith. Faith is always spent after an inspection. It's not just blind faith. There's no such thing. That's Satan's lie. What, does this guy expect you to have blind faith? No, he expects you to have faith. You have faith all the time. When you get on an airplane, you have faith. You have faith that the person up front isn't drunk. You have faith that that person actually studied aerodynamics and knows how to get this monstrosity off the ground, into the air, and landed safely on the ground on the other end. You have faith that when you're in your car and the light says red, everybody's going to stop and the other guys are going to go. You're spending faith all the time. It's just when anybody asks you to spend it about God, then you get all, well, I don't know, gee. So in the ages to come, God the Father demonstrates the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness to all of us who are in union with Christ Jesus. So what is it that made us the object of Lord's grace, of the Lord's grace? It's not our goodness. If you're good, you don't need grace. It's our sins. You don't really become a person until you know how sinful you are. So now I see, you know, last week I was bagging on the people who were always talking about, well, you know, in the past I was a drug addict and I was having sex all the time and I was an alcoholic. You know, I was bagging on them a little bit. You remember that? Well, now, one week later, the God, the Holy Spirit, rubbed my face in it a little bit. You know, he said, okay, well, here's why. 
They're doing that. Why are people so obsessed with telling their sin story? At least if this is the reason they tell it. And it's because it's our sinfulness that makes us require Christ. If you're not a sinner, you don't need a Savior. I'm a, I was a sinner. I'm a saint now, but I was a sinner then. And I went to him and said, I'm a sinner. He said, well, if you believe in me, you're a saint. I believe in you. Then you're a saint. Well, yeah, but can, can, can I lose it? No. Why? Because you didn't do it. I did it for you. And what I do can't be changed. Anybody ever tells you you can lose your salvation? They're lying. Because you didn't do it. How can you lose something you didn't do? God did it for you. You cannot lose your salvation. John 10, 28. I give eternal life to believers in Christ and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hands. You think somebody, you think you can snatch yourself out of God's hands? You think somebody else can come and take you from God? (laughs) I wish they would try that. (laughs) Yeah, that doesn't happen. The Lord's grace comes through for us all the time. When we're sinful, his grace comes through. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 talks about that time when we're spiritually dead. God the Father made Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God the Father in union with him. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ knew we were unrighteous, so when we believed in them, they credited to our account in grace their own righteousness, which can never be taken away from us, which is our admission ticket to heaven. Yes, we have sinned, but God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ have rescued us in grace. Like the first four women mentioned in the Bible, there is no soundness in us. And yet the Lord reminds us of who, you know, he reminds us of who we are in Romans chapter 3. And if you want to know what human beings are really like, Read Romans chapter 3. It is a scathing indictment of us when we were spiritually dead. Here's a couple of verses. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. It says, as it is written, there is no creature who is righteous before God, not even one. There is no creature who understands God or any divine thing. There is no creature who seeks a relationship with God. All creatures turned aside from God. Together they have become useless. There is no creature who does good, not even one. That's just three verses of the first 20 that say, y'all ain't nothing. Amen? And then there's that amazing verse 21. But now the righteousness from God is manifest through Christ. He said, you're all this horrible stuff, but now the Christ is willing to give you righteousness. Free of charge with no work on your part. No work to get it, no work to maintain it. Amen? You ain't hearing this in church. You're not hearing this in church. You're hearing about your sins. You're hearing about how worthless you are. Okay, I get it. But then when you become a believer in Christ, the, the, the narrative has to change. 
And even the narrative about sin has to change because what was God's attitude toward sinful mankind? God the Father demonstrated his unconditional love for all mankind and that while we were sinners, as unrighteous, ungodly unbelievers, Christ died as a substitute for us. When we look at that cross, you should cry. That cross should take your breath away. It takes my breath away. It takes my breath away. I get to experience that every single week. The amazingness of grace. Every week. Yet the Lord reminds us, and a woman caught in the act of adultery, who we are to him when we goof. John chapter 8, verses 3 to 5, the sin. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court where Jesus was, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. John 8, 5. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women to death. What then do you say? They're trying to trick him. The Lord said, Punks, I dictated the Mosaic law to Moses because I wrote it. He said that to himself. What he said to them, the Pharisees, is, but wait a minute, where the man at? Was she committing adultery alone? Where the man at? He needs to be stoned too. Where he at? You see, he, he, he cut right through their facade their moral facade, because the guy was a Pharisee. That's why I didn't bring him over. So it's just a woman. But Jesus got him straightened out. In John 8, 7, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Remember that the next time you're judging family and friends. Please. You think you're all that? You better think about it. Who is the Lord? He is the picture of grace. The Lord Jesus Christ doesn't throw stones at us because of our sin. He throws his grace at us. And when we look back at the cross in this Lord's Supper celebration today, we see a demonstration of the Lord's grace by coming from that lineage he came from. And we are grateful. Like the first four women mentioned in the New Testament, we are the worst. But God's grace is the best. God's grace turns our sinfulness into victory. Our God is the picture of grace. So let's enjoy the elements. Let's remember Jesus in the way he told us to remember him, obeying our Lord's command. We keep on celebrating the Christ and his cross regularly. We eat to remember who he is as a person, and we drink to remember his work on the cross, the voluntary sacrifice he made to deliver us. And we remember with gratitude what God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ have done to save us. Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 says, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it. He gave it to the disciples, and he said, Take this, eat it. This is my body, which is being broken for you. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, Jesus gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, the new covenant, the New Testament, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins.
Let's listen to the Lord. Let's keep on eating this bread. Let's keep on drinking this cup. And let's do both to remember him. And let's keep on being transformed by his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection from the dead, and his word. So as we enjoy the elements, let's listen to a song. James chapter 1 verse 17 says, Every good thing is given, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from God the Father, the one who is in control of the heavenly lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God does not change, ever. He gives you salvation, he doesn't change. Who he is never changes. Why? Because the truth never changes. And anything that you think is truth that changed, it wasn't the truth. So as we enjoy the elements, let's listen to the Lord's Supper song, All Good Gifts. on the land, but it is fed and watered by God's almighty hand. He sends the snow in winter, the warmth to swell the grain, the breezes and the sunshine, the soft, refreshing rain.
I really admire the guy who sings that song. He's Chinese, and he has Chinese parents. And China is a godless country. I have a lot of friends in China who have to sneak around to worship the Lord. And I have a, an equal amount of friends, perhaps more, who don't believe that there is a God. And every time I hear him, it just touches me deeply because of the journey that he had to go through to get to Christ. It's amazing. And there are these things that we hear all the time, but we don't really think about what the people's journey is to get to believe in Christ. Like this Chinese lady who stood in the middle of Manhattan and held up a sign that says, Jesus Christ is God. The ridicule that she goes through every day doing that, evangelizing to people with that sign in a place that is virtually godless, New York City. Just admire her tremendously. So the closing moments of every study at Barah Ministries are dedicated to our guests and to anyone who's listening who doesn't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the one thing I don't ever want you to be confused about when you leave Barah Ministries is what it takes to get to heaven. And this last part, this last three minutes, is perhaps the most important part of this lesson. Because the closing moments of the study are for the benefit of anyone who doesn't have a personal relationship with the sovereign God of the universe, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We want you to know that God wants you. And he doesn't care what you've done or who you are or what all the things you think are unforgivable. God wants you. Now, when a person evangelizes to you, they're presenting a gospel message for your consideration. They know they can't convert you, although the pressure you experience from some of them might feel like that's what they want to do. But most of them are just giving you facts to consider, facts that you may or may not know. For example, if you've ever had a Jehovah's Witness come to your door, they're evangelizing to you. And if you've ever had members of the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints come to your door, they're evangelizing you. Unfortunately, both of these groups are inviting you to share eternity with them in the lake of fire because neither of these groups believes that Jesus Christ is God. One of them even has Jesus Christ as part of the name of their church. Yet, if you ask them if they think Jesus Christ is God, they will tell you no. I have family members who are part of one of these religions, and despite my best evangelism efforts... My family members don't want to hear anything that God has to say to them through me. My brother, who died, must be eight years ago now, went from Roman Catholicism to become a Jehovah's Witness. And when I talked to him about Jesus Christ, he wanted nothing to do with it. Many parents are leading their children to a destiny in the lake of fire. If you want to assess whether you're a good parent or not, just ask yourself a simple question. Are you influencing your children to have a relationship with the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the sovereign God of the universe? Because he is the only way to get to heaven, according to John chapter 14, verse 6, which says, Jesus said to the doubting apostle Thomas, I am the way to salvation, and I am the truth through the gospel message, the word of God, and I am the resurrection life. And no one comes to God the Father in heaven but through believing in me. And one of my friends, I read you something that he wrote, and I just still can't get over it how the lie of God's enemy permeates 
our lives and convinces us that there can't be one way to heaven, that there are multiple routes to God, and the universe will provide you with the answer. Sorry, folks, that's not the way God works. It's really important for you to know that. If a gospel message makes it sound like you have to work to get to heaven, it's a false gospel message. And yes, there are false teachers. God has an enemy. And he sponsors people who teach you the wrong things. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1 warns, False prophets also arose among the people, just as there also will be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, who brought them to earth, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. How many times have you adults had friends who said, well, I'm going to let my kids decide for themselves, you know, what they believe. (laughs) That's the last thing I would ever do. I'm going to influence my kids to believe the truth. Because I want them in heaven with me. And my kids are believers in Christ. They're going to heaven. They learned it from Kermit the Frog. Amen? Romans Romans chapter 11 verse 6 says, We don't have to work to be saved. If salvation is by grace, which is a free gift from God, and of course it is, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is a free gift is no longer grace if it's not free. Romans chapter 4, verse 4 says you can't work for salvation. Now to the one who works for salvation, his wage for his work is not credited to his account as a favor from the grace of God, but his wage is credited as what is due for the work. Unfortunately, your hardest work is not perfect enough to earn you a spot in heaven, and that's what it takes to get into heaven, perfection. Do you want to get to heaven free of charge, though? It's really simple. Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and everyone in your household who also believes. John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has the resurrection life right at that moment. Eternal life, right at that moment. The Zoe life, right at that moment. But he who does not obey the command to believe in the Son will not see the resurrection life. Instead, the wrath of God, the lake of fire, abides on him. If you end up in the lake of fire, it's because you wanted to. Because God created a place for unbelievers to live where they can all live together with other people who want nothing to do with him. John chapter 3, verse 17 highlights Jesus' mission. For God the Father did not send God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to judge the world. But the Father sent the Son into the world that the world might be saved through him. So who is this God that saves you? The Apostle Paul describes the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. I, Paul, delivered to you as of first importance the gospel message I also received, that it was Jesus Christ who died for our sins according to Scripture, that he was buried, he was raised from the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures. So, Take the free gift of eternal life right now. It is as close to you as a five-word conversation with God the Father. Father, I believe in Christ. Or the nine-word conversation that the thief had when he was being crucified next to Jesus at the cross. The thief said, Jesus, 
Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Nine words. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the Lord said, truly, truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. And I might add, the guy didn't get down off the cross and run to a church and get dipped in water. Amen? Amen. That moment was the moment of eternal life. For him. So take that free gift right now. There's no time to waste. Why? Because God wants you. It's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to a change of mind about Christ. If you want to go to heaven when you close your eyes in this life, it's very simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Well, let's close with music. The Lord keeps it simple in John chapter 14, verse 23. He says, if anyone loves me, Maybe you will, and maybe you won't. You have a choice. He will keep my word. You just heard the word that needs to be kept for salvation, the gospel message. Well, here's Jean Murphy to sing a simple love song to the Lord that she wrote, and it's on her new CD. Jesus, I love you. Lord, you are the love of my life. Your word is the air I breathe. I belong to you alone. You are all I need. This is my love song. My my love song to you. Jesus, I love you. How beautiful you are. Jesus, I Oh, 
in fear and doubt. I love you, Lord, to the world I'll shout. I know that you have brought me here. To me, you are so How beautiful you are, Jesus, I love you, love you with all my heart, this is my love song, my simple love. And I simply love you. All right, so I have a conf- confession to make. I have to, <laughs> I have to, I have to come clean. <laughs> I have to come clean. So. I helped June to get her songs in the final shape before they go to be sung and recorded. And when she sang this song, I said, that's the stupidest song I've ever heard in my entire life. All you keep saying is, Jesus, I love you over and over again. They're like, where's the hook? You know, where's the... And now it's one of my favorites. Okay, I've said it. I've said it. So... Uh, you remember, I remember. And by the way, there are seven people in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho right now who are creating Barah Ministries in Coeur d'Alene. So there's John and Monica Miller. There's Mary Isaacs. Hi, Mayor. There is Harold and Cindy Christensen. And then John and Lisa Munoz. Como esta the Munoz family? They probably don't speak Spanish, and they just looked at me like, okay, you're a loser. Okay, I'm a loser. That's, okay, there's a little prejudice there. I get it. You know, Munoz, you automatically think Spanish. But anyway, thank you guys for being up there and for tuning into the broadcast. So when we say we're a worldwide ministry, we are. And there are people listening to us in China as well and sneaking to listen to us. Even though the internet over there is censored, they're finding ways to hear the broadcasts. So God always finds a way to get through. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Jesus and he will make your path straight. For the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He'll be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. So do not fear or be dismayed. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. He waits on high to have compassion on you, for the Lord is a God of justice, and blessed are those who wait patiently for him. So humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he might promote you at the proper time, slamming all your cares on his back, because he cares for you, which means God considers your problems 
to be his responsibility. Let us pray. Almighty God and Father, we just thank you for this chance to get together, to separate ourselves from the world for a period of time so we can have a conversation with you. And Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us your son. Thank you for giving us a guide in God the Holy Spirit. Thank you for being sovereign. Thank you for giving us the confidence that we don't have to worry about what's going on in the world because we always have, already have the victory through you. And we ask that as we go out into the world this week that we remember one simple thing, that there are people in the world who need you and your word. And bring it to our spiritual attention, who those people are, and let us share the gospel message with them so that they can be saved as well. We ask this through the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Say it with me. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming. Thanks for watching. And thanks for listening. Hey, where's the crowd? All right. Thank you.